You are listening to a podcast from Providence Reformed Baptist Church. If you would like to listen to more of our sermons, please visit our website at providencewi.org. I'd like you to sit down today because we're going to have a little bit longer scripture reading than normal, and uh, it sometimes becomes difficult just to stand and stand and stand. I know you respect God's word. There's nothing that says we have to stand up for the reading of scripture, but we, that's just the way we do things here. So I'd like you, we're, we're actually going to look at a, the, the section of each of the Gospels that records the very end of Jesus' time on the cross. This is a time when, if, if this were Good Friday, this, these, these are the kinds of things we would be doing as a congregation on Good Friday, and, and uh, yet I don't think that we reserve talk about the central event in all human history for Good Friday. So we have come to the end of Jesus' earthly ministry in John's gospel, and I thought it would be helpful today to start in Matthew chapter 17. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 27. I'm going to read Matthew's account of the end and Mark's account of the end, Luke's account of the end, and then I will read the text in John's gospel that we are covering today. Matthew 27, beginning at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour, About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, we're going to begin at verse 33. Mark 15, 33. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. And now Luke Chapter 23. Luke chapter 23 and verse 44.
It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for the spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. And now we come to our text today, just a small portion of what we've, of the account we've just read, John 19, beginning at verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for truth. Not just accurate details, but the truth about you and the truth about us. And as we see the the corruption in us that puts your son on the cross. We bless you that you love sinners, that you offer hope to sinners, that in this gruesome event, we're assured that the story didn't end. But we're also assured that the price was paid. Full atonement, propitiation, you are satisfied because of your son. So we can stand forgiven before you. Our, our identity can be new life, new creation, dead to sin, alive in Christ. Make this a time not just of instruction, but a time where instruction leads us to worship, a time where our instruction leads us to look around and see those you've given us to serve because of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. So there are certain things that, uh, since I've been in ministry these last 30 years or so, in vocational ministry anyway, uh, certain memorable things that I do that I I would never ask to do. Yesterday, as uh, I was getting ready to head out of town, um, I I realized that our our answering machine was blinking and I I had been in town for a ball game and came back home. And so I thought, well, I better check and see what that message was. And it was the the hospital calling and I get those calls from time to time. There's someone not connected to our church or anything, but uh, they they needed a chaplain to, to go to the hospital. And I didn't know any details, but they gave me a name in a room. And those those times, well, and you see a lot of different things, whether it's a nursing home or the hospital or somewhere else, where uh, you just don't know what you're going to see when you come in. And, and this was one of those circumstances where uh, it was, if you can call it vanilla, it, it was what you often see when a loved one is, is nearing death, and that is grief, 
confusion. And even though this was an elderly person who was close to passing away and the family knew it was coming, honestly, friends, you can't prepare for that. And let me just tell you straight up, they're really in this world, because this isn't the way creation was designed. There is no dignity in death. I mean, ultimately, I, I realize we make people comfortable and, and we care for their needs. But when, when folks talk about uh, just saying, oh, my life is really messed up, I have no quality of life, give me something to just take me out. There, there's nothing dignified in that. We are weak, frail people, and because of the curse of Adam, we, we wind up being in a circumstance where they may have to take us off the respirator because we're, we're not alive. And in that circumstance, I'm thankful for examples I have had um, from other, other leaders. And, and even though I, I'm not saying that I knew everything that had to be done, I said, hey, you guys, just, just come here. And I'd, I'd read Psalm 23 to this uh, woman who was lying in the bedroom I'd never seen in my life. And, uh, and the family came around and, and I, we just hung on to hands. And we're crying out to the God of creation who, I, I, yeah, I'm judgmental. And so I look around the room and I, I smell the smells I smell and I see the, 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 the things that I see in the room and, and I, I make presumptions that, that may be completely inaccurate about their stand before God. But at least at that moment, and I preached and prayed at the same time. The reason I'm telling you this story is because this is where our Savior is. It's this place where, friends, you are going to die. And this, this realization of what Jesus was going through helps us understand that the death of Christ for believers is, is hope. He walked through that door. Most of us have been with people who, who were very bold, and, and I've used my grandpa as this example over and over again, who were very bold in, in life about saying they weren't afraid about what comes after, dying, after death, and they weren't afraid of dying. And yet, when you're nearing the door, including for the Lord Jesus, it's, it's like sweating, as it were, drops of blood. This is not something that is dignified. This is something that is torture, and of course, the ultimate torture is that the Lord Jesus was not dying of natural causes. There was an execution that was just expected to end in death. Crucifixions almost always ended in death unless someone, Josephus, the Jewish historian, says he actually rescued a couple of guys from the cross and whether he was boasting or not, one of them actually survived. But in this instance, death was approaching and as the death of Jesus approached, the details recorded for us, actually, in hindsight, because you, I hope you, know the end of this story, that it didn't end on the cross or in the tomb. For us, the details recorded are comforting. This wasn't an unfortunate execution. This was an intentional work of the creator of the universe, the redeemer of repentant sinners. In Jesus, what you see here is an awareness of what was coming. Not all of us will have that privilege that, that we know death is nearing. But many of us, as I, I spoke with someone who, who had a, a terminal illness and uh, 
for a baby Christian, I appreciated the, the faith in her words. She said, I'm thankful for a terminal diagnosis because she said, I've had the opportunity to get my life right with God. What, what were great words. Jesus had an awareness of what was coming. What you see in him here is the bitterness of the suffering itself. While I believe, and I'll mention this later, in the immortality of the soul, that meaning, meaning you are immortal, but you are living in a body that's going to die, it's not like it's an easy extraction. And so you, you have lived in this body your entire lifetime, and it's not that easy to, to give it up. There was a bitterness that the Lord Jesus was engaging in in this suffering. Yes, there was a longing for relief that his words express. But there was a confident ending proclamation. And what you see in all this is design. That the death of Jesus actually did something for those for whom it was intended. This was as, as brutal an event as you see recorded in, scriptures, in the scriptures. This was designed. This was plan A for a fallen world so as we look into this text, after this, and so you look back and you say, after what? After what? And this, not all of you have been able to be here uh, through all of our study of this particular event. After the, John has recorded Jesus talking to his mother and talking to John himself uh, you have all of these events, and of course, John's the only one who records that conversation. John's writing these things down. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. John, the, the only apostle, as far as we know from history, who died of natural causes, uh, even though he suffered much. John says, okay, after this, you know, the things I just told you, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said... I am thirsty. Now you realize the death is coming very, very shortly. This, the three hours of darkness have been on the earth. He's bearing the sins of the world, the Bible says. The Lord Jesus, during his lifetime, uh, grew, uh, Luke tells us, in wisdom and stature in favor with God and man, that's in, in Luke's record of Jesus' childhood. He's the only one who tells us about Jesus' childhood at all. But as Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, that means that increasingly, even though he was always God and he was always all-knowing, omniscient is the word that theologians use, even though he was always omniscient, at times he laid aside the use of that. So the Lord Jesus learned things while he was on earth. The first time I ever heard that, I thought, well, no, he couldn't learn anything because he's God. Well, he couldn't die either, right? The Lord Jesus had a normal childhood. That doesn't mean he sinned, but it does mean that he grew, as the scripture says, in wisdom and stature and favor with God and men. And you, you realize then he, he laid aside the knowledge for a time of when he would return. Remember, Jesus said, I, I don't even know that the day and the hour. Uh, he, he did, of course, after he was glorified, but he didn't then. And so there were things Jesus learned, and that means increasingly he became aware as he grew into adulthood 
manhood came around 12, 13 years old, the, the becoming a son of the commandment, the, the, the bar mitzvah. At around 12 years old, when Jesus was in the temple, he fully realized, not necessarily all the details of the cross, but fully realized the father's business. And we'll, I'll mention that again in a moment. When he was 12, he said to his parents, don't you know I have to be about my father's business? When he prayed before his death, and this was in John's gospel back in chapter 17, he prayed to the father, I glorified you on earth, past tense, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. His righteous life and his sacrifice is what he was talking about. You say, well, could he have not gone to the cross because he said the work was done in John chapter 17? I think we're taking it too far. The point is, he had come to the place where he did everything the father had called him to do. He came on a mission. He did his business here on the earth. He carried out the function, the mission that the father had given him. But John is recording this thirst of Jesus, and he alone records those words, I am thirsty, or some of your translations just say, I thirst. You think about your, the, the sense of thirst that you have, isn't that a good thing? I mean, it, it says something. For, for some of us, I might say that something's wrong because I'm just thirsty all the time. Others of us, it's the byproduct of drinking too much coffee, and you, you get dehydrated. But isn't it a good thing to drink water? And so that's a, a design of God that, that we say, thank you, Lord. It's like thanking God for nerve endings that tell you you're touching a hot thing so you can pull your hand back. This is the creator of the sense of thirst. The creative mind of the one who suffered that very sensation here in an, an intense way. I remember as a child crying for water. Um, and the truth is, I was just kind of a big baby. We'd had ham for, for supper and I just couldn't, couldn't wait. Jesus knew that the sensation he designed to motivate you and me to hydrate ourselves would one day be a part of his own suffering for sin. And that, that's the only point I want to make here I, I will not say that that is the design of this text. And, and before we go any further, I, I should point out that when I am, am preaching the word of God, I am preaching my opinion. I am saying this, this is the word of the Lord and I will exposit it as closely as I can to, to what I think this means. But, but if somebody says, well, I really don't think that thirst thing was the main point of the text, that, that, is, that is fine and, and disagree with me. But I am trying to bring some insight into what was happening here. Know the thirst of Jesus and, and detailing you know, how exactly our body thirsts uh, what causes that biologically is the main part of this. It isn't the main part of this. But it does help us to see that the Holy Spirit moved John to point this out. He was suffering. In fact, it says that this fulfilled the scripture, and I am guessing that the psalmist had foretold the drinking of sour wine uh, in, in the, the text recorded in Psalm 69, which really seems like an oddball thing. What is he talking about? They gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. 
I, my understanding of this text would be that John is saying, this fulfilled the scripture. This fulfilled the scripture. He, he knew the Psalms. They sang the Psalms. It would be like for some of you who grew up in church, if I say, yours I spent in vanity and pride and you could finish the line. John grew up singing the song, they also gave me gall for my food and, and John could have said in Hebrew, for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. He's saying the scripture's being fulfilled. I'm, I'm, I'm seeing this right in front of me, right now. And so John says, there's a jar full of sour wine standing there. And I, some of your Bibles say stood, but, but the, trans, the New American Standard is just so, sometimes wooden literal translations are a very good thing. It, it was standing there. And the tense he's using is, that was its place. That was its place. If you think back to your home, I, I think about things that were fixtures in my mom and dad's home that actually still are this mirror on the wall with this table thing that stood out that mom always put flowers on and I can say when I think about that home there was that mirror and that table standing there they didn't stand there at one point in time and then they're gone it it may have been a fixture at the foot of crosses the the area of crucifixion that there was a, a jar a jug a pot full of sour wine and it was standing there and it says in response to Jesus they put a sponge full of sour wine on a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. Um, Matthew and Mark also record this and uh, they, they actually say that the offer came as the Lord was, uh, was singing the words of Psalm 22 or speaking the words of Psalm 22 my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's why I read the other gospel accounts and uh, there was an offer actually that was recorded beforehand where I believe it was in Luke's gospel chapter 23 where the Lord Jesus had refused the drink early on and now a little bit later he's asking for the drink and that's a legitimate question to ask why did he refuse early on and accept it later and let me just say up front I don't know but I think I agree with a, a, a good majority of theologians of the cross and of this text who would say the Lord wanted to bear the full measure of the Father's wrath, and so he refused any comfort until the work is done. And so he, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He, he said, I'm thirsty. And John had seen that jar standing there. Sour wine, by the way, was a, a poor man's beverage. Yes, it was a, a fermented beverage, but uh, wine, when it just sits there, is not necessarily something that's terribly palatable. And a lot of us would say it isn't terribly palatable when it hasn't been sitting there. A poor man's beverage, it wasn't good enough, I should say it was good enough for soldiers and common folks, but not suitable for choosy palates. It's kind of like me and Folgers versus the good stuff. It's like, you know, you get to a place where you're picky. So most people did not drink uh, the sour wine. 
but it was something that was good enough for common folks. And that's what was at the foot of the cross. It may have been there for the soldiers to drink, but it may have been there as just a, a, a slight relieving of the suffering. You say, well, these guys were so brutal. They weren't merciful. You know what? Even, it's called common grace, friends. Even nasty sinners can love their mom. Even nasty sinners can stop and pick somebody up when it's super cold outside because they don't want them to suffer anymore. So as, as brutal as you and I are capable of being because we're sinful people, even unbelievers have the capacity to be kind. And I, I think that this was possibly a, a mercy for the people who were suffering. I mean, they were going to die, but uh, a, a drink wasn't going to prolong their life. Luke, as I pointed out, recorded an earlier offer of the drink that, that Jesus had refused. And Luke implies that it was actually a part of the mockery, that, that, they, that they were wanting to, in, in giving him the drink, that they were insulting him. So John says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And there's some debate over what were the last words of Jesus on the cross. We have uh, in the past on, on Good Friday gone through the seven last words of Jesus on the cross. In fact, we may have done that this past year. Because when you read Matthew's account, and I, I believe it's Matthew and Mark, both of them say, into your hands I commit my spirit. John says, it is finished. And my guess is that, that it was both. Either Jesus said, it is finished, into your hands I commit my spirit, or into your hands I commit my spirit, it is finished. Even the ones who don't record the words, it is finished. Um, there, there is one of the gospel writers who said he, he cried out with a loud voice, and so I would probably lean toward the loud voice was, it is finished right after he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. I don't think that's the important thing here. I do think though it's important that the spirit moved John to record specifically this word and it's actually one word, tetelestai, that Jesus spoke. Assuming, assuming John writing this down in Greek didn't, didn't say like, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, Jesus said that in Aramaic. But John doesn't record this being spoken in Hebrew or Aramaic. He records this as being spoken in Greek. And tetelestai means it stands complete. It is finished. It is paid in full. In fact, if you look at the way that word was used, it's, it's perfect tense. And if I can illustrate this in, in the language, we don't really normally talk this way in English. Perfect tense would be a dot with a line after it, meaning it happened and the effects are continuing. It stands complete. In other words, Jesus wasn't just doing a work. I did it. I washed the dishes and they're just going to get dirty again. That's just, that's, that's a, one of our past tenses. In, in this case, the words of Jesus, John recorded is it stands complete. Now I thought it was really fitting that uh, just this past week here at church, we got a, an envelope from Bank of Cameron, or Community Bank in Cameron, where they, they held our mortgage for the roof on our building. And, and we paid that off uh, when we sold our property last year. But just this past week, we got this, this memo. And I, 
I don't, the deacons, maybe guys, you want to burn something in here? Um, it's, it's, it's in your treasurer's box, Rod, so I don't know if we want to, <laughs> I don't know if we want to burn that or not. But there's, there's a sweetness. When you personally have paid off a debt, your house or whatever it is, I'm bringing this up now, of course, because that's the way that word was used. It was used in a lot of ways of, of bringing something to completion, but it is as if the Lord Jesus, just before he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, said, paid in full, it's done. Now, what exactly did he pay? I know there are some false teachers who say Jesus was paying a ransom to the devil. That is absolutely error. That's not what's being spoken here. Paid in full means that the Lord Jesus' death on the cross actually did something for those for whom it was intended. Again, this, this word was used of paying off a debt or, or paying the rent. The price paid is the demand of the Father towards sinners. It stands complete. The work is done. And then John says he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Some commentators have, have said he didn't give up his spirit and then bow his head. And uh, I, I don't know if that's significant or not, but, but the point of one, I believe it was John Calvin, one of the commentators I read anyway this week said, um, this is demonstration that he gave up his life that it wasn't taken from him. And I'll, I'll certainly buy that because that's what Jesus said he was going to do. But there's another part of this that I, I think is important, and this isn't the only text I would use. Earlier that day, as Jesus hung on the cross, he was being mocked by two criminals. One of the gospels says both of the guys hanging on the crosses beside him were mocking him, and there's mocking coming from the ground. Finally, one of them um, had a softening, a, a grace-driven softening of his heart. He'd been listening, he'd been seeing, and God had brought truth to this man and opened his eyes. And he turned to Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That, those may seem like simple words, and yet do you realize the theology of the thief on the cross who turned toward Jesus just a little while before these events we're reading about now? He called him Lord, and yes, that can mean sir, but there's more to it than that. He was mocking him before, and now he addresses him as Lord. I think that's significant. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is saying he's, he's looking to this one who is dying right beside him as, as someone for whom death will not be the end of the story. He's saying, you're going to come into your kingdom. He's saying, you are my hope when you come into your kingdom. This is a kingdom that I need to be in. Yeah, there was some significance there. And Jesus' response, seeing the man's heart, and yes, seeing the crimes written above the man's head on that titulus that was on every cross, Jesus said, today you will be with me in the grave, in paradise. I'm pointing this out because there are a lot of uh, evangelical Christians, a lot of people who believe the Bible like we do, who say when you die, you stay with your body and that's why cremation is bad. And I'm not a big cremation fan, but, but the truth is when, when you die, this is not something dreamed up by the Greeks. The Bible teaches the immortality of the soul. And there are a lot of places that 
communicate this, but this is not the least of them. The Lord Jesus left that battered body and he went somewhere. He had just said earlier that day that he was going to be in a place called paradise. And it's not something we can draw charts up and say, well, were there Old Testament saints and there were New Testament saints and, and I'm going with the believing dead of all ages. With the Lord Jesus, the, those redeemed by the blood of the lamb before he ever came to the cross. I'm saying it's important for us even though we just looked at three verses today I am saying this is instructive for us. When you compare this to the rest of the scripture, I very much believe that this is, this is instructive. There's a, and again, seeing in Jesus the awareness of what was coming and the bitterness of the suffering itself and the longing for relief and his confident ending proclamation, you're seeing design and you're seeing that the death of Jesus actually did something for those for whom it was intended. I am arguing that you can know, believer, that this is what you needed. And for you, if you are an unbeliever, this is what you need. This, this is something that is, this is, if I can use the word cross in a different way, this is crucial for you to understand. If you're not sure, and I know there are a lot of people who, even in Kids Quest, I hear the children, I hear this from adults. I'm just not really sure I'm in. And to know for sure is not to be able to look back to some experience in the past when you felt really good toward God or even, even mouthed a prayer. The question is, where do you stand with him right now? This is what you need. And the need is to turn from your sins, to bow the knee to Jesus and, and just in your heart, beg him to forgive you and let you into his family. So I'll make some observations, and, and we already have, but, but I want to point this out again. He knew what was coming. He knew what was coming. By this point in his ministry, he knew full well what was happening. So you know there was design in the cross. How could the Lord Jesus look ahead and, and, and see this if there was not design in it? If, if you ever have a project, uh, call it a simple thing like a puzzle, there's, there's an end in mind. And, and if you're like me, you want the picture there of how it has to end up because you've got to get the right piece in the right place. There was a design to what Jesus was accomplishing. Every piece of this came from the sovereign plan of God. You know this was no accident, this was no plan B. Here's something else we learn about this, and that is he endured all the suffering himself. There was no one else carrying this. And yes, old Simeon told Mary when, when she's standing in the temple with this little baby, actually Simeon had the baby at that point, and, and he said, a sword will pierce your own soul. It wasn't that this didn't sting Mary and, and Mary's sister and and. Mary Magdalene, those ladies who were at the foot of the cross, Salome, John's mom. It wasn't that it didn't sting them, it sting John and others who were watching from a distance. The point is this, they couldn't take that. They couldn't take the cross. At that point, they didn't understand what was going on. This text is showing us that he endured all of it himself and it's instructive for you and me 
because we realize there's nothing I have to contribute to my salvation. There is nothing I can do to win God's favor, to find forgiveness. If I could just go to church enough, take communion enough, pray enough, study the Bible enough, all of those things are wonderful. Share the gospel enough. What's enough? Perfection is enough and you don't have it and neither do I. There is, there is no enough. I cannot endure what Jesus endured. This text is picturing him as taking all of it. He drank the cup of his father's wrath to the dregs. So there's nothing I can do to add to that. He longed for relief. He longed for relief so you know there was a fulfillment he had in mind. In other words, this wasn't going to go on and on and on. He, he said, I thirst. He, there, there was a need. There was a relief in mind and that relief, of course, was going to come when he died. A lot of us have seen people who longed for death. Even though they didn't really know what that was going to look like, they knew there would be a relief there. There was a fulfillment Jesus had in his mind. And finally, he proclaimed the end of the event to Telestai. It is finished. It stands complete. The price is paid. He proclaimed an end to the event. So you know the work on your behalf is done. If you know a little bit of the satisfaction of paying off a debt, if you can see the light at the end of the tunnel with your home mortgage or, or with your car payment or your student debt or, or that the, maybe some of the stupid debt you've, you've acquired <laughs> because of selfishness, whatever it is, there, you, when you finally see this, this, is, this is coming down to being done. There's such a satisfaction in that. That's just normal human relief. You see what Jesus was doing and the end of what he was doing is so much bigger than paying off something that somebody else could probably do. He's the only one who could do it. He did it. It stood complete. And so the work is done. And ours is to believe. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Is this yours? Let's pray. Our Father, we are uh, coming to an end of something here, but there's so much more to do that things that we have to do at home, things we have to do as a congregation today, uh, we really find it hard to see an ultimate end of something. And yet here we have in this text a statement that is repeated in a lot of ways in your words, in a lot of places, a statement that says the work for our salvation is done. We have nothing to add, no special prayers or special service. So we praise you for the cross, that Jesus indeed paid it all. So bring us this day and this week to respond to that. Even as we see this immense love for us, bring us to reflect that to people in our homes, to people in our church family, to people in our workplace. Bring us to see the, the loveliness of this love toward the unlovely. Thank you for your son. In his name, amen.
from the London Confession, there is a statement that communicates what, what I believe the Bible teaches about itself. And so the statement, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is, and if we stopped right there and, and did a quiz... Uh, I don't know if we would all answer it the same way. Some people say really, really smart people or people who really know their Bibles well or some denominational authority or even some doctrinal statement. I'm reading a doctrinal statement and it says the infallible rule of interpretation of the scripture is the scripture itself. In other words, the Bible is its own best interpreter. It says, and therefore, when there's a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which are not many but one, in other words, there aren't many interpretations of scripture. There's one intended meaning that God has for us. When there's a question about the true and full sense of any scripture, which are not many, but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. If I'm confused and I'm in one of those hard texts of the Bible, I praise the Lord that he hasn't left me in the dark and he's given me a whole Bible, a completed revelation. I don't have to look for more. He is... He has given a, a satisfying revelation to me of his own character.